0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, October the 21st, 2022. It is currently 1.07 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas, where I'm currently running an experiment now, the Bible says man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, right? We all know that scripture. We all quote that scripture. Well, I'm running a little experiment to find out how true it is because it's 1.07 p.m. and I have not eaten anything today, okay? So I I am starving. I, I, I'm i not even going to pretend I am starving. I'm not going to act like that I'm godly going, okay, all I'm going to do right now is is partake of God's word. I, I hope, I hope that I get some spiritual nourishment here. But I am, I'm physically hungry, and I know what you're saying. Well, you should go downstairs and get some food, because your studio is upstairs in your house. So just walk downstairs. In fact, the the studio door opens into the kitchen. I should go down there and get some food. But I, it's, it's. I just feel like today I haven't accomplished anything. The first live broadcast failure. Second broadcast, I think the way it ended and it kind of turned into a discussion about money and ministry, I think that was a failure. So I've I've got two strikes. So I can't eat. If I eat all I'm going to be thinking about, I've got two strikes today. I'm one strike away from striking out in the World Series and it's over. My career is over. They're going to fire me. I'm done. So I've got got to do something that I think will be beneficial. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to return to our discussion about law and gospel. We've been working on this series now for a little while. I hope you've enjoyed the series. If Again, I would challenge you, please download the Church One app. That's Church O-N-E. I know I keep saying that over and over and over again. Some of you have told me to stop mentioning it, but I have to mention it because that's where that's how all, all the content is broken into series there. it's easy for people to to keep up with everything. but if you go to uh, go to the app store, uh, look for Church One, download the Church One app, then search for Theology Central, Choose Us, then go down to series, you'll see a series entitled "Understanding Law and Gospel," and then just enjoy yourself with hours and hours and hours and hours of discussing the proper distinction between law and gospel. We gave you 25 theses. The, those theses are right there on the app. You can you can find it and download it in a PDF, uh, PDF format, so please use that. Uh, and what we're, we're supplementing what the series that we're doing, that I'm teaching, with listening to a series of messages that was preached at some conference recently on the proper distinction between law and gospel. We've had a good time doing the re- the first review. Now we're going to do the second review. Now, I would love to finish this review. I would love to finish reviewing this sermon. It's 42 minutes long, but you know how long our reviews take. So I doubt I'm going to be able to finish this. I may try to find that like perfect stopping point, then go get some food, then come back and try to accomplish something today. Uh, we've got We've got to accomplish something today. Oh man, I I hate when I don't feel like I'm accomplishing anything. Yes, I live under a law. I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to accomplish this. I got to do this. I got to I didn't do this good enough. I didn't do this right. I live under law. I, do you do you ever feel that way? But it's good to hear the gospel that at least for salvation, well, it's all about Christ and what he did. But the proper distinction, distinction between law and gospel I think it's been obliterated in the evangelical non-catholic church. Obviously it's been obliterated in the catholic church, but I think even within the evangelical non-catholic fundamentalist bible believing churches, there's not a proper distinction between law and gospel. So I think this is one of the most important series I've ever done and I'm doing everything I can to give you as much as I can so that you can grow in your understanding of it. So you're ready to go back to this conference. I don't I think it was somewhere I think I think this conference occurred recently. Um, and, um, well, we're just we're just listening to what they had to say, seeing we agree or disagree. Remember how reviews work? I don't listen to it in advance. That's a good thing. That's a bad thing. It's good because it just makes this real and organic. It's not rehearsed. It's not produced. It's just me sitting here going, hey, I'm going to listen to this message on Law and Gospel, and I'm inviting you to be a part of it. If you're listening to me on the Spreaker app, as always, feel free to say something. Hello, "Good goodbye, something. Um, and, uh, well, if you have any thoughts or observations or questions, please place them there. And anybody else can email me at newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. I do try to check my email right before I end a live broadcast just to see if there has been a question sent. Someone sent me a very, 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 very serious question about some very serious issues. And I have not responded to your email yet because I've got a that's going to take a little bit of time. And what I may do is email that person. And, and uh, I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's, they asked some deep questions. So um, I'm going to, I've got to figure out how to try to uh, help them with their questions. So if they're listening to this, don't think that I have ignored you or have forgotten. Um, I've already, I think I've responded to all my other emails. So uh, yours is at the top of the list. So, all right, everybody ready? Here we go. Long gospel part two. They're, they they, uh, if you listen to our review of, of their part one, they just went to a break and they got food, <gasps> food. Yeah. Okay. They got food. Now they're walking back in from their, w- w- after having their snacks and he starts quizzing them, just throwing out scripture. Is this scripture law or is this scripture gospel? Is this scripture law? Now he's giving like, he's given very, very, very simple ones, but it is always a test and a challenge for you to be able to know, when you look at a scripture is that law or is that gospel? Is that law or is that gospel when you hear a sermon? Is that law or is that gospel? So it's a you need to know that distinction. That this just you need to become an expert in it, all right? You need to be an expert in it. We cannot understand the scriptures apart from a correct understanding of law and gospel. All right here, we go.
1: All right, well everybody's going to grab their seat. I give you a Bible verse, you tell me law or gospel. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Gospel. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Gospel. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Good. I say to you, everyone that is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hellfire, to the hell of fire.
0: Law, okay. Remember, if the passage tells you what God has done for you, that is gospel. If the passage says you have to do something to get something, like you've got to be pure in heart. If you want this, you've got to do this to get this, then that is law. Gospel is what Christ has done for you. Law is what you must do in order to get something, have something, whatever the case may be.
1: By the way, I ride a bicycle on the road and I don't like those roadies that are taking up the lanes for the cars. But I also don't like people in five ton trucks who think they can somehow be tough and run over some guy with spandex and a 15 pound bike. So they'd almost they cut me off, and I used to just go, "You fool!" And I read this verse, and I go, "Oops." So now I have a new style. Somebody cuts me off. I'm riding the bicycle. I just go, "Classy."
0: (laughs) This isn't just just a thought. If we change a word, right? Like, like okay, I can't say fool because fool makes that that puts me in danger of, of hellfire. I can't call someone a fool. So I'll change it and I'll classy. This is just a, a kind of a law gospel question. Are you somehow obedient to the law? Just because you changed the word you used? Is it the word you used or the feeling in the heart? Like, just because I changed the word, is is it is is it the word or is it the the in the meaning behind the word, the true meaning behind the word? Is it the thought? Is it the emotion? Is it the feeling? Or is it the word itself? Now, I know the Bible says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is edifying, which builds someone up. So yeah, we have to be careful of the words we use. Yes, sure. that's law, that which condemns us. I just think sometimes we focus on, if I, if I just change the word, if I, if I use a replacement word, then somehow I'm good to go. Look at me, I never use the wrong words. But if I use these other words, are they possibly though I have the exact same intent, the ex- exact same emotion is intended by it. So therefore, should I not then be condemned even by the law? Just because all I've done is cleaned up the word, but I did not, the heart has not been cleaned up. See, I, I think I think sometimes we we just think if we can clean up the outside of the cup, we think we're in obedience to the law. That's, see, that's why we need the gospel, because the gospel, the law demands perfect obedience internally and externally externally and internally, both. And we may clean up the external, but the internal is still messed up. I just just think that's interesting that he used that illustration.
1: You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Law, good. Judge not that you not be judged. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. I'm glad you said law because Jesus went on to say, for this is the law and the (laughs) prophets. Good one. (laughs) Take your Bibles. Let's just do a little bit more of this. I want to show you a couple spots. Of course, generally when we're thinking about grammar, we might use the indicative statement of fact and imperative command. Uh, we, We could do that. But just as you're reading the Bible, you intuitively know some of this if you go to Ephesians chapter 1. Most of the Pauline epistles right, start off with a bunch of things that God has done. Ephesians 1 in Christ. Uh, Romans 1 to 11 the mercies of God. Colossians 1 verses uh, to verses 3 uh, chapter 3 verse 4 it's this, Paul is saying this is who you are in Christ and then live in a manner worthy. It's almost like there's a scale. Imagine my arm is the scale and you put the weight here of chapters one, two, and three of Ephesians. There's the fulcrum here. And then he said, I would like you to live out by the power of the spirit of God, who you are, walk in a manner worthy, balance
0: out the scale. So we understand- Okay. There's that phrase and you know how sensitive I am to this phrase. Christians use it all the time. Here's Here's the gospel. Here's what he's done for you. Now he wants you to live out, in a sense, this law. He wants you to live out the law by the power of the spirit. Now, I don't know why Christians never stop to go, well, wait a minute. If I'm living out the law now by the power of the spirit, it's the power of the spirit. That's omnipotent God, the Holy spirit, third person of the trinity, right? If I'm living out my Christian life by the power of God, then it should be perfection. I don't know how Christians can say, we're living out our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, yet we're going to continue to sin. How does, does not anyone see a problem there? I, 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 just, I don't understand. We say words, but we don't ever stop to think, well, what, what should that look like? What should that look like? And, okay, all right. I know that's not the point, but I hear that and immediately. I just go, whoa. Okay, so so that sounds good, and everyone says amen. Of course, everyone's got to say amen, but nobody's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I'm living out my Christian life by the power of God, <laughs> man, man. I should, I, 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 everyone in my home should be like, wow, it's so great to live with someone who has denied self, died to self. They put others before self. They never say bad words. They never get mad. They never get irritated. They're submissive. They're godly. They're loving. They love others more than they love themselves. I mean, it would be, it would be like everyone would know, but guess what? The Christians who know you and you live with probably know that, Well, oh, you're just about as imperfect as well. You've always been. So how do we then say that we're living out the Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit? If I'm living out the life by the power of the Holy Spirit, that power, I mean, that's the power of God. That's the power of God. That's perfect. That's omnipotent power. You say, well, 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 we can, we can, we can stop the power. Well, then, yeah, you just see it. To raise these questions should not make Christians mad. It should go, hmm. This is difficult to understand. Understand, here's who we are, therefore
1: live. Uh, But once in a while, there's a couple little zingers in there. And so Ephesians chapter uh, 1 through 6, what's the first command in Ephesians 1 to 6? Does anybody know? You'd think it'd probably be in chapters 4 or 5 and 6. And although there's a lot of commands there, what's the first command in all of Ephesians Anybody? Yes? Be holy. I, I like the, the command, be holy, but that's not the first command. That's good, though. That's in chapter 4. It's actually in the section of chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so called circumcision which is performed in the flesh, remember you used to be Gentiles. There's another example of that in Romans chapter.
0: Um, There was a little bit of confusion there, because he says, where's the first command in Ephesians 1, 1 through 6? Someone points to verse 4, and he says, no, it's actually in chapter 2. Let's read Ephesians Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That's all gospel, 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 gospel. Verse four, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. See, that's not a command that we, well, how do we understand this? He's chosen us, that we should be holy and without and uh, and without blame before him in love. Well, he's chosen us to be that and he makes us that in what Christ did because obviously we're not going to be that in practice. So is that is that why he didn't mention that one? Because he's chosen us that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Well, if we're saved to be that, we're never going to be that. But if he saved us to make us that, then he makes us that in our position and by an imputed righteousness. So, I don't know. It Then he jumped over to Ephesians 2. Uh, I can't remember where he went. He went to Ephesians 2. It was weird he didn't, uh, I don't think he caught to what he was saying. That's, that's probably why it's confusing. But I've done that before. I've asked a question and then everyone in the church is looking at me like, we don't understand what you're talking about. And then I'll go back and listen and I'll be like, oh, because my question made absolutely no sense. Okay, but all right. 1 through
1: 16. Where's the first command in the book of Romans? Anyone? And if memory serves me, and I've got some scholars in the room, but I think it's chapter six, verse eleven. Even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ.
0: The first command? Is chapter eleven, I think, or said chapter six? Um, yeah, I would. I we would have to we would have to work on that. I, I that that's interesting. I like he like he can't. Those are hard questions to ask because he's asking people to look through like within five seconds, six chapters, or or hey, where's the first command in Romans? Okay, well, you're giving me five seconds to try to skim the entire book. So yeah, that that's. That's not—sometimes I ask those kinds of questions, and then it's obvious the people can't answer, and then I get frustrated, but I'm like, why don't you know this? Well, I didn't give them any chance to figure it out. It's it's a mistake you make in preaching all the time. So, yeah, I would—you would have to walk me through all of that to show me how that's not a command or that's not a command. But, okay.
1: So when I'm reading the Bible, of course, I'm thinking about— is something to be done, or is it something that has been done for you? If you want to summarize last session, law is due and gospel's done. It was the Baptist Spurgeon. Do we like Baptists here? Um, it was the Baptist Spurgeon that said the gospel's not due, due, due. It's done, done, done. When we talk about good news, it's done in Christ Jesus. Beza wrote, Beza took over for Calvin, by the way, ignorance of this distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of the abuses which corrupted and still corrupt Christianity.
0: That's crazy. That's a, that's a powerful quote. That Not understanding the proper distinction between law and gospel is one of the great evils, one of the, one of the things still corrupting and destroying Christianity today. that that most people don't even understand or even know about the distinction between law and gospel. It's hard. So you can imagine how bad a shape Christianity must be in today.
1: Spurgeon said there's no place on which men make greater mistakes than on the relationship between the law and the gospel. And so we want to make sure we get it right. All right, let's see what I want to do in this session. If you have any questions, we're going to save those questions because Pastor Meister is going to ask me some of those soon. All right, next session. We're going to talk about sanctification now.
0: Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> All right. Whoo, sanctification, man. The, the never-ending, oh, wow. Sanctificationism is a, is a is a problem area of theology. Um, I, I know within the evangelical Protestant world we like to. We like to, in a sense, almost brag, hey, we're not like Catholics. We have a clear distinction between justification, sanctification, and glorification, right? But then we turn around and say, how do I know I'm saved on the basis of my sanctification? How do I know I'm justified on the basis of my sanctification? Because if I don't have enough sanctification, then I'm not justified. But somehow we say they're separate. But if I need the sanctification to prove that I'm justified, then justification is really not based on Christ and Christ alone. Justification is based on, well, how holy or godly I become or act, which seems to say that justification is based off an infused righteousness instead of an imputed righteousness. Because if I'm saved off an imputed righteousness, then I cannot look to just sanctification to prove that I'm justified because my justification is proved by that imputed righteousness. So within the Protestant world, this becomes a mess. It becomes this all, we we, want to say they're distinct, but we really merge them together. No, justification and sanctification. I'm not saved unless I'm sanctified enough. Well, then my justification is based off my sanctification. He's like, no, 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 no. If you're justified, you will be sanctified. Okay. So I judge my sanctification, my uh, justification by my sanctification. Well, yeah, okay, well, then you've now connected the two, you've not separated them, and now you're judging my justification, which is supposed to be based off an imputed righteousness, by the presence or existence of some kind of a practical righteousness, which would seem to indicate that justification is based off an infused righteousness. This becomes a mess in theology. becomes a mess in the minds. When Christians start talking about these things, I just kind of want to go. I want to plug my ears and go, no, 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 and just run away. Like, where is he going? I'm I'll get in my car, drive away, turn on the music, turn on music loud. No, 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 because as soon as Christians start talking about sanctification, I'm just like, what is happening here? because sometimes i feel like i'm sitting back in a catholic university learning catholic theology and they were like no we're not catholic i'm like man you're about as catholic as you can get the way you're explaining this all right so how do we understand the how do we understand sanctification properly with a law and gospel distinction and let's see what happens here thinking caps on all right i know it's a uh, it's It's Friday, yeah, it's Friday. If I said Thursday earlier today, I apologize. It's a Friday afternoon, right? I'm starving, but we're gonna eat spiritual food by unthinking, contemplating meditating on this idea of sanctification. How do we understand this correctly? How do we understand this correctly? <sighs> I'm nervous because yeah. Whenever this, discuss, whenever this subject gets brought up, I'm almost always just left, like, defeated, and like, I, I, it's just, man. All right, here we go. If I
1: may start by giving you some books to read on the doctrine of sanctification, let's start off with a free one. Sometimes free is bad, but this is free is good, Horatius Bonar, B-O-N-A-R, and he's got a little book called God's Way of Holiness, God's Way of Holiness. And this is an excellent book on sanctification from a biblical perspective, understanding law and gospel. By the way, at our church, uh, when you're a new Christian or a new member, we want you to the first book we want you to read outside the Bible is the Gospel for Daily Living by Jerry Bridges. By the way, Jerry Bridges, before he died, he said, "I just wish I would have put more gospel in the Pursuit of Holiness book." He's a great writer, by the way, and great that he'd even admit that. But Gospel for Daily Living, uh, I think it was John Fonville who said that he read that book 30 times to help him understand uh, who God was. And I thought anybody who reads a book 30 times, I think I should probably read it once. <laughs> um, God's Way of Holiness, Gospel Mystery of Sanctification by Walter Marshall. It's going to be a little harder to read, but there's an updated version of that. Does anybody remember the updated version who did the modern English? Yeah, Maybe uh, the guy's a PCA pastor down south. Uh, Onig, I think you had him on your show, didn't you? Okay, Bruce McRae. Okay. Onig, good to have you. Onig, what, what podcast do you co-host? Back to the Reformation and which episode had the most downloads ever? No. Just <laughs> <What was you>? <laughs> no. <laughs> and then um, Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges. Easy to read. Uh, now, remember, one of the things about Jerry Bridges that I like so much, he invested in college students, right? Navigators. He was the shining light of navigators. So, how do you talk to college students in and, and ways they understand? So, if you think I'd like an intro book because gospel. Um, uh, A Mystery of Sanctification by Marshalls, Harder to Read, Jerry Bridges, Discipline of Grace. If I said to you, sanctification is all God's work,
0: I wonder what you'd say. Oh boy, here we go. Now, this gets into the, the argument between monergism and synergism. Now, justification, I'm monergistic. I believe in a monergistic justification 100%, absolute. It's all of God. Think of monergism, the work of one, synergism, the work of two. I'm monergistic, uh, monergism, I, te- I would teach you that justification is a work of God alone. You do nothing. Your faith is given to you by God, everything, all of it. Your change of mind is given to you by all of it is a work of God. That's monergism synergism means it's a work of two. Typically, traditionally, but remember, whatever I thought yesterday is of no value today, I'm going to set it aside to listen to what he has to say. Typically, I would view sanctification as a synergistic work. God does his part, and I have a part to play in it. I've never quite understood exactly how that works, but and I don't think anyone does, all right? So, because, now here's the issue. If you say, God, if God plays any part in your sanctification, so justification, monergistic. Sanctification, synergistic, a work of two. If you say that that God has any part in sanctification, you would seem to think then that our sanctification, we, we, we should just be perfect, and we should be holy, and we should be without sin. But if you say that we play a part, then you have to argue that our part can override God's Ultimately, ultimate desire. Now, if you say it's all God, well, then you can never judge me or condemn me for my lack of sanctification, right? If you're like, man, what is wrong with your Christian life? Take it up with God. He's the one responsible for my sanctification. I mean, there lots of questions come into play here. Lots of questions. So he just said, what would you say if he if he was to tell you that sanctification is all the work of God? Now, I think there is a There is a positional sanctification where I'm set apart completely to God. But if he's referring to a practical sanctification, is he going to go with a monergistic or a synergistic approach? This, oh, we're getting into some good theology. This is good, 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 good. All right, let's see where this is going to go.
1: Strictly speaking, sanctification is the work of God. I wonder if you'd believe me. So many of us think that sanctification is our holy living. Uh, We realize we're saved people. We realize that God has given us a law, and that law guides and directs. It doesn't condemn us because we're Christians. Jesus took that condemnation for us. But we want to live a holy life. We'd like to honor God, and husbands would like to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives submit to their husbands, children obey. There's all kinds of commands in Scripture. Exert, exercise, fight. There's soldiering language, there's farming language, sweat and toil language, a Greek word, kapiao, where you're literally sweating because you're wanting to exert yourself, not to please God to be into his good favor, but because you are. There's, there's a real activity level there when it comes to holy living. But is that sanctification? What I'd like to do this next session before the...
0: That's a good question. Is holy living sanctification? Is holy living sanctification or is it something else? Now, if it's holy living, is it monergistic or synergistic? If it's something else, is it monergistic or synergistic? Ooh, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. All right. I hope you're ready. I I don't know if we're going to agree or disagree. I don't know if we're going to be left completely confused, but it's going to be a fun journey. So we're going to buckle in. Here we go
1: q and I want to try to convince you, study on your own, that's fine by me, that sanctification is God's work alone, strictly speaking. We call that monergistic
0: sanctification. All right, he's going to argue for a monergistic sanctification, which typically in my Christian life, I would argue against. I have always believed in a synergistic sanctification, all right? And I, I can give you my reasons why, but if he's going to redefine what sanctification is... If he's going to say, when I talk about sanctification, I'm not talking about holy living. Well, then I may be willing to change my mind that it's monergistic. If he's going to say it's holy living, I'm still going to have a struggle saying that it's monergistic. Because if it's holy living and it's monergistic, then any lack of holy living in my life, you cannot blame me. Don't come to me. Don't, don't be trying to do anything. You got to take it up with God if it's monergistic. And I think that would be fair to say. But let's see what... So we need him to define exactly what he means by sanctification before we know if it's monergistic or synergistic. All right, here we go.
1: Mono mono alone, erg working, like you measure a work in ergs. Mono, erg, monergistic sanctification. We all believe that justification is God alone working. Regeneration is God alone working. But it's sanctification. So God is the sanctifier. And we respond with faith and good works. I'm going to try to show that even in your London Baptist Confession. Sanctification, strictly speaking, is God is sanctifying. That's going to make us do things like, God, thank you for sanctifying me. God, please sanctify me. Uh, it will help us to understand ca- categories rightly when we read old scholars, and then we respond with holy living. I'll say it once. I'll say it ten times. Antinomianism is lawlessness. Anti-against, like antichrist. Nome or nom. thats not the Pac-Man sound when he eats the little dots. Uh, it's it's the word for law, anti-law. We're so much for the grace of God in Christ Jesus. There's nothing we can do to to, to jump out of God's hand. Uh, death can't separate us. Nothing can separate us. Not our own sin can separate us. Therefore, we just blase when it comes to God's law. We don't keep God's law. We want to sin that grace might abound. That would be antinomian, but that's not true that we're antinomian. We want to respond with the reformed categories. We were guilty in Christ. I'm sorry, excuse me, I misspoke. Guilty in Adam, we were graced in Christ, and we respond with what? Gratitude. That's the book of Romans. That's the Heidelberg Catechism, guilt, grace, gratitude. So tonight in this next session, sanctification is God's work alone, and our response is faith and works, okay? That's what I want to talk about tonight. J.C. Ryle, that Anglican uh, man who wrote on holiness, that's probably what he's most famous for, said this. The subject of sanctification is one which many, I fear, dislike exceedingly. The very last thing they would like to be is a saint or a sanctified man.
0: I, I think it's not that we hate it because we don't want to be sanctified or don't want to be holy. I think the reason we hate sanctification is because it's so convoluted and confusing, and I don't know if any anyone understands it. And I agree. Someone just said, "I love that guilt, grace, gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude." Yes, I definitely. It's not guilt, grace. Prove it. (laughs) It's not guilt, grace. I got to test it. It's guilt, grace, and gratitude. So yes, I I do love that uh, that that idea. But J.C. Ryle saying that people don't want to be holy. Man, there may be some. Uh, there is a truth to that. There's a part of us that doesn't want to be holy, even even as regenerate Christians, because we have a sinful nature, right? Things I want to do, I don't want to do. Things I don't want to do, I end up doing. The things I uh, the things I want to do, I do. I don't do. You, we get the idea. Romans seven. Uh, so, um, but I just think the reason, uh, at least, I despise sanctification is just because listen to Christians talk about it. We can't even agree if it's monergistic or synergistic. We can't even agree exactly its distinction or its connection with justification. In fact, some say that it tests my justification, which then destroys. Then if if my sanctification tests my justification, then I'm not justified by an imputed righteousness. I'm clearly justified by some kind of infused righteousness that has to manifest itself. So like it it just leads to major confusion. So I, I think that there are lots of different reasons people may not be a fan of sanctification. But let's see. Let's go on. I'm so curious to see where this is going. I'm really, really worried, though. I'm so worried. All right, here we go. Yet the Christian does not deserve to be treated this way.
1: It is not an... But the subject does not deserve to be treated this way. It is not an enemy, but a friend. What is sanctification? Now, before we even answer that, this way we live a, a holy life, there's a couple different kinds of sanctification. It wouldn't surprise you if I said there's initial sanctification ongoing
0: sanctification, and ultimate sanctification. What would... Okay, now, there's different kinds of sanctification. Question. Are all these different kinds monergistic? or some monergistic, some synergistic? And he says initial, ongoing, and concluding. Obviously indicating sanctification is a process. Right. What would those be? Definitive
1: sanctification, God takes you and, and sets you apart, right? When it's Thanksgiving and you have guests over, I'm sure you give them the proper
0: china. Now, before he gives his illustration, definitive sanctification, that happens at salvation. God calls me, he, he draws me, he saves me, he regenerates me, has all synerg- uh, it's all monergistic, and then he sanctifies me. He sets me apart unto himself. I belong to him. I'm no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. I've been set apart for his purpose, his glory, his will, All right? That's that's a definitive sanctification. I would clearly say that is monergistic, All right. But what about these others? What about the ongoing one?
1: Right. What are those, uh, um, what's the brand of the paper plates that's Chinette, yeah, that's it, I knew. You get the Chinette. No, no, you have something special. It's set apart. Only Thanksgiving and Christmas. Now, I love bicycles, so I have bicycles that I would let you ride. And in California, uh, I have a particular bike, and, and uh, I have even put a little post-it on there sometimes. I say, do not ride, right? You can stay at my house. You can ride my mountain bike. You can ride my tricycle. You can ride my hovercraft, but there's this particular bike it's a canyon carbon fiber and you're not allowed to write it because it's special. It's set apart. It's sanctified. It is holy. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes when you re- see the word sanctified, it's God setting us apart for us. Let's just take a... a uh, for himself. As, go to First Corinthians 6, please. What I'm talking about tonight is going to be this progressive sanctification, but just wanted to make sure when you hear, see the word sanctification... Sometimes it's definitive. Sometimes it's glorification. Most often it's going to be for progressive. Definitive sanctification. Can you see it in chapter 6, verse 11 of 1 Corinthians? Remember, he's talking to these Corinthians, and he says to these sleazy sinners who are saved, many of them, in the city turned to the Lord Jesus after hearing the law and gospel and such were some of you remember he had that big long list that vice list all kinds of sexual sin and other sins and such were some of you but you were washed sanctified justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God by the way the way I remember that is kind of like peeps washed sanctified justified WSJ when I say WSJ to you what do you say WallStreetJournal.com, right? WSJ.com. Forever redeem that. WSJ. Wash, sanctified, justified. And by the way, that's a wonderful thing, and God did all the work. And those are now. Please now,
0: this is very important because a lot of people preach this like this. This is how it's preached, and I preached this uh, like this before know ye not that the unrighteous, sh- this is First Corinthians 6, 9, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, meaning that if you're saved, you no longer do any of those things. It is completely stopped. There's no idolatry in your life. There's no adultery in your life. But if a man looks at a woman with lust, he's already committed adultery in his heart. So there, there's, there's, there's plenty of adulterers sitting in your church and your small group and your Sunday school and probably sitting in your house, all right? So there's there, there's no covetous, there's no drunkards, revilers, extortioners. There, these, but the way it was preached, hey, you're no longer those things. You stopped being those things. But the problem is he's writing to the church of Corinth where they're still being all of these things. They're getting drunk at the Lord's table for crying out loud, Someone in the church is having sex with his father's wife for crying out loud. The church is a total train wreck. It's a dumpster fire. So how can he say, but such were some of you, but ye are washed. Almost a completed act. You're washed. You are sanctified. You are justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus, by the spirit of God, it seems to be that you, this is what you were, but now you are different, at least in your position. There is a definitive change that has transpired in salvation, in Christ Jesus. You're no longer an adulterer. You're no longer effeminate. You're no longer any of those things in Christ Jesus, because you now have been given the imputed righteousness of Christ. You are now different. You either have to, because here's, here's the way we read it. Well, Christians could still do some of those things, but they won't be those things. That, that that doesn't make any sense. If you're doing them, you're still being that. You still have the sinful nature. But if we understand this, you're not that anymore because you've been washed. You've been sanctified. This is the monergistic work of God. You've been washed. All your sins have been washed away. You've been completely set apart by God and you've been completely justified by faith. You've now been declared to be righteous. So you're no longer these things in your position. This is why you can be. it can be said that you're a new creature in Christ. The old is gone. All is new. Not in your practice because you still have the old nature. So for all things to be new, the old nature would have to be gone. Now we have to understand this, that you're no longer that in your position. It's the only thing that makes any sense. Or you have to look at anyone who, if any of these sins show up in their lives, hey, you can't be that anymore. But I'm telling you, these things show up in the heart. You don't think there's idolatry in your church and in your life where people put things before God? All right? You don't, I mean, come on. You don't think there's sexual sin, pornography use in your church, in the heart? I mean, come on. Covetousness, it's all over the place. So I think that's referring to definitive sanctification, definitive when we are set apart and our position divine passives.
1: And can you imagine some of us, maybe you're like me, I've done some sins with my hands and my body. And I just think, you know what, if I could just take a shower, a 45 minute shower, an hour shower to just wash that dirty, filthy sin away, I couldn't do it because the problem is not my body. The problems is what I did with my mind and my heart.
0: Exactly. The problem is what's inside of us. That's the problem. That's why this has to be a positional p- thing. Because unless you believe in the eradication of the old nature, all the, what's in, uh, these things are still going to be inside of you. And they're going to manifest themselves in different ways, shapes, and forms. They're going to be there some way, sh- somehow.
1: But you know what, Christian? You're not filthy. You're not dirty. You're washed. Can you imagine you're washed? That's why I love to sing that song. Washed in the blood of the lamb, right? Redeemed how I love to what? Proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Washed, sanctified, and justified. So sometimes in the scriptures, you'll see the word sanctified for a one-time setting apart. Where God says, you're now mine.
0: You're no longer an ain't. You're a what? You're a saint. That's monergistic. 100 Right, and he set you apart. But in the discussion of holy
1: living and obedience, what we're talking about tonight, it's this ongoing or progressive sanctification. That's what we're going to talk about. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is shorter than the longer. For what reason? Longer is longer than the shorter. The shorter is shorter than the longer. Why is it shorter? well, it's shorter because you teach younger children this, and it's just less information. Here's teaching children level on sanctification. Question 35, Westminster Shorter Catechism. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. God's
0: gracious work, Burkoff would call it a supernatural work. It is Okay, now here we go. This is where the confessions go, all right? And see, this is what gets me in trouble because I never fit in on any team. I get kicked off all the teams, okay? But I've got 900 questions. Okay, so so now sanctification, this is looking at it from a monergistic perspective, is all the work of God. And it's the work of God where in a sense, we become more and more holy. We become more and more holy. Well, number one, wait a minute, it's the work of God. So why is it, why are there sin and failure and, and ups and downs and why why and and if it's all the work of God then can anyone be blamed when they're not more holy how come that person over there in my small group why are they still committing this sin or this sin or this sin what is their problem well blame God if he's the one doing it and it's all his it's a work of grace it's all his then you can't blame the individual. And why is it that it just, it it never, like, if God is the one doing it, why wouldn't it be a perfect work? Why wouldn't it just, like, why, why all, I mean, you've got to explain to me why we keep sinning, why we keep sinning. And if he's going to sanctify us, why wouldn't he just get rid of the old nature? God is sanctifying us by keeping the old nature present. What? Hey, I'm going to sanctify you, but I'm going to keep the very thing inside of you that's never going to allow you to be completely sanctified. But I'm sanctifying you, even though I'm keeping the very thing in you that's going to prevent the sanctification from ever actually occurring.
1: God's work where he enables us and renews us to say no to sin. What do we call that? What's the day of the dead in Spanish called? See the I was going to try to pronounce it, but my wife says I have no accent at all. And when I say Spanish things, I say que or "ace," right? It's like
0: "muerte," death, mortification. God. Now, please note, God enables you to say no to sin. Now, the minute you say that, the minute you hand that to people, you've been enabled to say no to sin. Then that means every Christian can. They now possess the full ability to say no to all sin. Now, how can I say no to all sin? if I still possess a sinful nature, unless God grants me an ability that far outweighs and is far superior to the sinful nature. Well, wait a minute. Then why is Paul saying the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. And then he ends Romans 7 by saying, with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh... I serve the law of sin. Someone explain that to me. I never can get a good explanation. God gives you the ability to say no to sin, but no one can be perfect and no one can stop sinning. Well, if I can't stop sinning, that means I obviously can't say no. (laughs) Do do Christians, do we need to take a, 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 a class in like basic logic? Hey, you now can say no to sin, but you can never say no to all sin. Well, that means I can't say no. Like, I don't understand. What, what I think sometimes Christianity leads to some kind of mental block where we can't see reality.
1: God enables us and renews us so we can say no to
0: sin, to kill that sin. And then yes to righteousness. See, he gives you the ability to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. He gives you the ability. Now, if he gives me the ability, but you tell me I can't, I can never be perfect and I can't stop sinning completely, then you've just disqualified your statement that he gives me the ability, unless you're telling me he gives me partial ability. He gives me some ability. You you can't have it both ways. He gives you ability to say no to sin and say yes to righteousness. However, you're going to continue to sin. No, no, that is completely illogical. It makes absolutely no sense. I don't care who gets offended by it. I don't care if it's the reformed people who get offended, the non-reformed people, the monergists, the synergists. I don't care about your team. I care about just rational, logical thinking here. We keep sinning. But we keep telling everyone, hey, guess what? You're a Christian now? You can say no to sin and you can say yes to righteousness. You now have the ability. It's a God-given supernatural ability. You can do it. All right, great. Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. Come here, come here, come back, come back. I know I saw all the excitement on your face and I know you got all excited. Come here for a second. But you're going to keep sinning and you're going to keep sinning and you're never going to be perfect. Well, wait. You just said I've been given the ability to say no to sin and say yes to righteousness. I know I said that, but I didn't really mean that. But I did mean it in my preaching. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, if it makes sense to you, by all means, I, you just, hey, don't argue with me. Just stop sinning. And don't do that. I stopped sinning because I cleaned up the outside of the cup. Stop sinning on the inside. Stop sinning in your thoughts and your words and your deeds and your actions and by what you do and by what you leave undone. Stop, stop sinning externally and internally. Make sure you stop sinning because if you're going to stop sinning and you're going to obey God, remember, if you're going to say that now I have the ability to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, you're telling me I now have the ability to obey God and, God, and obedience to God has to be perfect, has to be personal, has to be exact, has to be entire, and has to be perpetual. And you're never going to be that. I can give you three scriptures. Love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself and be holy as God is holy. You've never pulled that off. But supposedly you can say no to sin and say yes to righteousness. Explain how on one hand you can say no to sin and yes to righteousness, but you can't even fulfill those three basic commands.
1: Claire Ferguson once said to me, and I've never forgotten it. When you read John Owen, what's the book that everybody's read on John Owen? Mortification of sin. He said, why is that? Because we all want to learn how to mortify sin. That's good. He goes, but I'm wondering why maybe we haven't read the glory of Christ. And tonight I'm going to try to convince you in the sanctification section that the main thing that we need to be reminded of in our holy living is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the forgotten person when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification and then the evidence and fruit of killing sin and yes to righteousness. We've, we forgot about Jesus. That's why I alluded to earlier, we have to
0: I don't know. Why, why is there a forgotten element? You just said, I've been given the supernatural ability to say no to sin and say yes to righteousness. I, I don't need to know anything. I've been given a supernatural ability. I don't need to know anything. I just say no and I say yes. Temptation, no. Righteousness, yes. Love God, yes. Love self, No. Live for self? No. Live for God? Yes. Die to self? Yes. Deny self? Yes. You say, well, it's not that simple. Wait, if I'm being given a supernatural ability, it's that simple. So why do we have to mortify? We got to fight. We got to struggle. No, all I have to do is say no and yes, because I've been given a supernatural ability to do so. How can we say one? It's like we speak words. And nobody in the church can ever stop and go, wait, 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 wait. Let me take your words to logical conclusion. Logical conclusion, I just fell off the side of a cliff and broke myself into 500 pieces at the bottom of the cliff because your words make absolutely no sense. If your logical conclusion leads you over the cliff into It just absolutely doesn't work anymore. I got to back up and go, where where did the logic go wrong? Where did the logic go? I got that question today. Well, if I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's God, then in a roundabout way, I'm indwelt by the the, the Trinity. And if I'm indwelt by the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you think those three would be sufficient to help me overcome all sin, but I continue to be weak and continue to struggle. Well, I Exactly. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is I do believe I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit because the Bible says so. But clearly, I don't have the supernatural ability to just say no to sin. Clearly, I don't. Truth, reality, pray, Look, I, I'm going to use the same argument I use against the charismatic. If you tell me God guarantees healing by the blood of Jesus Christ, well then why is everybody getting sick and dying? Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. It's not enough faith. So are you gonna tell me I do have the supernatural ability, but I just don't have enough faith to activate it? Is that are you gonna go charismatic on me? Oh, it's it's God gave me the supernatural ability, but it's a lack of my what? Willingness? It's a lack of my faith? And if God gave me the supernatural ability to do so, why wouldn't God then just take away my not wanting to? I mean, why? like it, it, the whole thing begins to fall apart.
1: Preach the Lord Jesus Christ to saints as well, not just to unbelievers. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. It is God's work. God is the sanctifier. We are being sanctified. We don't sanctify ourselves. All right. So he's saying it's
0: completely monergistic completely it's all the work of god so the re- then then any lack of sanctification in your life is god's fault if he's the sanctifier and we don't sanctify ourselves the lack thereof would have to be god's fault you, i don't know how you can get around that Now, I got no problem God still holding me accountable. That's okay. But you still, uh, from a practical standpoint, your lack of sanctification, whoever you are listening to this program, if it's monergistic, if, if the progressive sanctification is, I believe the definitive sanctification clearly is monergistic. But if you believe the progressive sanctification is monergistic, well, then the lack of it, it's God. Because you just said, we don't sanctify ourselves. God sanctifies us. So wherever I am in sanctification is a direct reflection upon God's work in my life. And the lack of sanctification in my life is a direct reflection of God's work in my life.
1: Strictly speaking, God alone sanctifies. Leviticus 20, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Wilhelmus A. Brekel, has anybody read Christian's Reasonable Service? Uh, Brakel was uh, a great theologian, but he put things in very practical ways. And so the theologians back in those days, dads and moms even, would read scriptures in the morning, and then they would have Brakel for breakfast. And they would read their children Brakel for breakfast because he was easy to understand. But he didn't dumb things down. Brekel wrote, God alone is sanctification's cause. As little as man can contribute to his regeneration, faith, and justification, so little can he contribute to
0: his sanctification. See, we, we can't we don't contribute anything to justification? Well then we don't contribute anything to sanctification. Now again, I tend to be mon- I'm monergistic in my justification. If I said that incorrectly, just as as little as we can contribute to our justification, we contribute to our sanctification. We don't contribute anything to our justification, then we don't contribute anything to our sanctification. I understand that logic, all right? But I'm completely convinced of a monergistic justification. I I don't know if I'm—put it this way. This has not convinced me of a monergistic sanctification because he's made a claim that's patently false, it's just blatantly false that we've been given a supernatural ability to say no to sin and say yes to God because then Christians should be perfect. 2,000 years of church history. Sin, 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 sin. Church splits, fighting, division, gossip, slander, fornication, adultery, divorce. You go on and 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 on. I mean, why didn't Paul? I mean, 1 Corinthians should have been the shortest letter in the history of letters. Hey, Church of Corinth. You have the ability to say no to sin and yes to and yes to righteousness. So stop it. The end. And at every church, stop it. Just stop it. You can stop it. Just stop it. Just say no. Say yes. Every church, stop. Just stop it. Just stop it. You don't have to do that. You have the power. You have the power. Someone, so, so, and you say, well, we don't mean that. Well, if you don't mean that, what do you mean that Christians have the ability to say no to sin and yes to righteousness? You have to mean then we can stop sinning completely and we can be perfect. And you say, no, 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 you can't. Well, then don't tell me I can say no to sin. Because the minute you tell me I can't be perfect, that clearly means I can't say no to all sin. Now, we're going to stop. We've made it to the 1756-minute mark, 2444 left, Law and Gospel Part 2. We will finish this tonight. We will. One way or the other, we'll finish this tonight. But I have to have physical food. I I hope this sparks some serious questions, man. I hope this sparks like th- this should this should be look. I was hoping my Colossians stuff would spark. I mean, I gave you some very important questions in Colossians two eight that did not spark the questions that I was hoping. But I hope this does. I hope this does. And I'm going to go back to Colossians 2-8, one way or the other this evening. I have to. I'm, I'm yeah. I have to. I still can't let that go. All right, but. Yeah. I don't know what else to say. I'm just, I'm a little, I'm just, when I see this, I told you, as soon as we get into sanctification, I'm like, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. When As soon as as Christians start talking about sanctification, I just want to run. I just want to run because it just, it's maddening. It's insanity. It's like we say words and without any thought of their connection to reality. Like, shouldn't our words be connected to actual truth and reality? It has to be. All right, I'll stop right there. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. This should be hopefully a good discussion. Those on Discord, oh, I can't wait. I want to. I want to see. Come on, talk to me. Talk to me. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.